Well, hi there, it's Rick and Friends. Rick Madison here, and uh, thanks so much for listening. And today we have a very special guest. And it, it's so much, it's so interesting to me. Uh, certain guests I have on here of the political nature, uh, some people want me to submit questions. And our, our good friend Kevin Falcon of the BC United Party says, let's just roll, Rick. So I really appreciate that about him. Kevin Falcon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again, Rick. Yeah, I, I always love uh, all kinds of questions. Come on, come on. That's interesting, though, because, I mean, you could be, well, I could throw anything at you. And, and I mean, we're, we're live and all that kind of good stuff. But, but I, I found it interesting and refreshing, like I said. So is that just been the years of experience and, and uh, you know, the transparency, I would think? Yeah, you know, part of it is the the transparency. I've always been a, you know, I've always tried to be a person in public life that just is kind of a straight shooter about things, even if it sometimes causes controversy. I just think it's better to just give people an honest answer and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And I especially think it's important now that we've got a government that, you know, quite honestly, is just brutal. Like we've got the Canadian Association of Journalists have voted this NDP government the most secretive government in Canada. And, you know, they put fees on freedom of information requests, which is so important for journalists and the public to be able to just know what their own government's up to. And, and you know, I, I remember the case of uh, a few mums in the lower mainland that were just trying to get some basic data on the number of bears that were being shot, black bears in, in their community to try and understand this. And, you know, the government was talking about send, sending them a bill for I forget the amount now, but it was like $1,500 or something to get access to information that they should be able to access without having to pay large fees. So I don't like governments as this one does that tries to control everything that, you know, the premier asks the questions and they'll, they'll pick which reporters get to ask the question and maybe they might be kind enough to allow for one follow-up. Where on earth do we get to a place where a government thinks it has the right to tell people who gets to ask what question and how many they get to ask? I, I've never liked any of that. So um, I just prefer to, you know, answer all the questions that get asked. It is interesting because I did hear that back in the old COVID uh, daily report days. Yeah. That there was a point and shoot. And if, if uh, Dr. Henry did not appreciate the question, uh, she would not pick you the next day. And, yeah. you know, as a content provider, you need the content in order to provide. So obviously that uh, is detrimental to running a business, which is a media outlet. So, I, I do appreciate that uh, transparency and and that lack of transparency is that I mean have we seen that throughout uh, the government's tenure? Well, look, all governments uh, tend to you know try and manage their messaging. You know, uh, even when I was in government, I had to fight with my own government sometimes because if I had some information that you know might be not favorable to government or something, they'd say, oh, you know, release that, don't release that during the week, minister, you got to release that on Fridays. And I just refuse to do that. I won't, I won't play that game because Fridays are, you know, take out the trash day, they jokingly call it in government where you, if you have bad information, release it on Friday. This, this government does it all the time. I mean, David E.B., when he was housing minister, you know, they had a very highly critical audit of the BC Housing Management Corporation, which was directly under his purview. And, you know, they, release that on the Friday of a, of a weekend. And then when he was firing the board of BC Housing, which the NDP had appointed, he did that on the Saturday of a long weekend. So they're constantly trying to do things in kind of this sneaky, underhanded way 
that uh, I think, you know, just does a disservice to the public and frankly, government. Like I just, it's not the way I'm going to be. We, we will, you know, put it out there, good, bad, and different. I think the public's mature enough to, you know, know what we have control over, what we can't. And frankly, we're not going to be perfect in government. I don't pretend I'm not perfect. We're going to, you know, just do the best we can. And when we don't uh, get the right uh, results that we want to see, we'll acknowledge we're not getting them and work harder to change direction so we get them. Uh, let's talk about um, public opinion a little bit. We we might have an election uh, soon. I mean, there's been talk of it. There's rumors. Have you gotten any closer and any inclination that we are closer to a provincial election? Well, interesting you say that because I actually just finished doing an interview um, with a television station that was asking this question. They apparently went to David Eby and asked him based on some poll that showed that 62% of British Columbians think that there will be an election this year. So they asked him again, very specifically, are you going to call an election this year? And he, again, very specifically said he was not going to. And so they asked me what my thoughts were on that. And I said, well, look, you know, um, I think because he's being so specific, it would certainly raise questions of character and integrity uh, and truthfulness if he actually did what the NDP did before, uh, which is say, no, there won't be an election. And then they called one. Uh, I think it would really hurt his credibility tremendously. Um, but, you know, from my point of view, to quote a former uh, U.S. president, trust but verify. So I will trust that what he says is truthful, but I want to verify before we, you know, assume there's not going to be an election. And so I think it's just good to be in a state of election readiness as an opposition. We'll continue to work hard and make sure that we're going to be in a position that uh, we're ready to take them on whenever uh, they call the election. Now, I should one final point on that. You know, we I was part of the government that brought in fixed election dates as one of the commitments we made to British Columbians. You know, um, uh, boy, that was over 15 years ago. Uh, we said we'd bring in fixed election dates to stop this situation where governments manipulate the political calendar to their own narrow interest instead of the interests of British Columbians. And so we felt it was important to say, no, there will be an election every four years. It's fixed. Government doesn't get to pick and choose whether they like that timing or not. Uh, it could be a good economy, a bad economy, whatever it is, we'll live with it. And we did as a government. And this government, I, I think, struggles with that. And they're always looking for some way to try and manipulate things to their own advantage. Um, I, I hope that they don't do that because I think it would be, frankly, um, you know, would severely undermine his character and credibility, given how definitive he's been on this issue. We're a few months into uh, Davey, David Eby's uh, leadership. Uh, what's your report card on his leadership thus far? Well, my report card is that we're seeing more of what we've seen for the last six years and two terms of NDP government. And that is lots of announcements, lots of press releases, but really poor results. And, you know, today in the legislature, we were talking about housing, for example, and I was pointing out that under six years of NDP government, they've run two elections now. They've promised affordable housing for British Columbians. They promised they'd build 114,000 units of affordable housing within 10 years. And where, where are we today? Well, we've now got, believe it or not, the highest housing prices, not just in Canada, but in North America, according to the latest uh, stats out from RBC. Um, we have the highest rents in Canada. They've gone up by more than $4,000 a year on average here in British Columbia for typical renters, more than $4,000. We've got that 114,000 housing units they promised in 10 years. We're in year six of NDP government and they've delivered exactly 12,000. 
of those 114,000 promised housing units. And they're already more than halfway through their 10-year plan. So they're failing miserably in every outcome that matters, but it's not just housing. You look at healthcare. I mean, in healthcare, they've made all kinds of promises on healthcare, uh, yet one in five British Columbians cannot access a family doctor. Uh, when they try to go to a walk-in clinic, they face the longest wait times in Canada, right here in British Columbia, the longest in Canada. Uh, we've got a million people, a million British Columbians on wait lists hoping to see a specialist. Um, and we've got these urgent primary care centers that they've been opening up that literally they open up and there's no one in them. And as the doctor here in Victoria said best, he said, you might as well make them Tim Hortons because there's no staff in any of them. So I think that the challenge is that it's a lot of announcements and really bad results. I'll, one more example is, is, of course, public safety because this is an area that affects every community, uh, no more so than in Kelowna, where we've got a situation where repeat, often violent offenders are committing multiple, multiple crimes. They're constantly arrested by the police who do a great job of actually you know, holding up their end of the bargain. They arrest these folks. But under David Eby, who has been the attorney general for the first five and a half years of this NDP government, what did he do? Well, he's operated a catch and release program where these offenders get arrested and they're released right back into the community, sometimes the same day. And we know for a fact, based on a letter that the urban mayors wrote to Eby, pleading with him when he was attorney general, for God's sakes, stop this catch and release program. They actually gave the example in Kelowna where 15 individuals were arrested more than a thousand times last year in Kelowna alone. In Vancouver, you've got 40 individuals that were arrested 6,385 times in a 12-month period. I mean, it's just a catastrophic failure under this government. And yet, you know, um, they don't do anything that's going to bring about any appreciable change. Is this, um, is this kind of attitude, and, and, and I'm going back to, uh, to the leadership. I mean, is this just a continuation of, of a Horgan... Uh, narrative because uh, obviously he was very popular. I mean, we have, uh, and, and this is another question, sidebar to that, 57 seats versus 26 seats. I mean, is the public looking at this and going at that re report card and saying, you know what, they haven't done very well, have they? And and is this going to be a wake-up call? Is this going to be like, I mean, I guess that's the biggest question going into an election is how many people have paid this much attention? Yeah, and look, I think, uh, here's what I honestly will tell you. I think that the public is looking at the situation in British Columbia today where we've got, you know, just terrible outcomes in healthcare. Everybody knows that. Nobody even argues it, actually. Um, public safety, same thing. In every community, it's been impacted by, you know, crime and disorder and social chaos that have exploded during the term of this NDP government. This is this is not something that we saw 10 years ago, anywhere near the extent we see today. Um, and, you know, housing, same thing. You know, the, the results after two terms of NDP government are atrocious. I think that the public really gets that. That does not mean they're going to say, okay, well, let's go vote for Kevin Falk and, and, and his team of uh, what will soon be BC United, because we have to earn that trust and support from the public. And, you know, I, I make no bones about that at all. And we still have work to do. There's no question. We got to make sure that we lay out a very clear uh, policy platform that's going to say to people, yep, that's something I can get behind. Now, we started that with our first major public uh, policy platform announcement just two weeks ago on mental health and addictions. 
And I was really, really pleased with the feedback we heard, not just from doctors and frontline workers and people that are involved in trying to help uh, those struggling with addiction and mental health get better, but just from the broad uh, public that responded in a really positive way to what is really a very dramatic departure from this what this current government is doing. What this current government is doing is obsessively um, going forward with, with just focusing on one small area and saying, if we just decriminalize drugs like heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, and fentanyl, and if we just continue to talk about providing publicly supplied addictive drugs to people who are struggling with addiction, um, that somehow, you know, we're going to have improved results. Well, I can tell you this experiment is not going to end well. We are hurtling towards, you know, uh, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle in terms of, you know, the destruction of our, our cities and communities. And I'm not going to let that happen. And I've been very clear, we're going in a totally different direction. And our direction is that our primary focus is going to be on treatment and recovery. Our focus is saying to people, no, we don't want to supply you with uh, addictive drugs so that you spend a lifetime in the throes of addiction. But actually, our primary focus is to help you transition to treatment and recovery by making sure it's free and that cost is not going to be a barrier and that we're going to help you develop um, not only as you recover from your addiction, but to provide the skills and training, workplace training, et cetera, that will help you return to society as a productive member of society. And I think that that is really important. And then secondly, we're going to make sure that those struggling with severe mental health challenges that have been left to roam the streets, uh, left to their own devices to be exploited, and abused, and sometimes trafficked. Instead, we're saying, no, no, we're going to remove you from the streets and provide you real 24-7 psychiatric and medical supports uh, for up to two years in purpose-built facilities that are a modernized version of what we used to call Riverview. And we will do that in every region of the province, not just the Lower Mainland, but the Okanagan. We'll make sure we do that in the North, the Kootenays, and Vancouver Island. And that will help give those folks the proper care and compassionate attention that they need and deserve, because after all, they are somebody's child or sibling or parent. Um, and it will, the byproduct of that is we will have streets that are much more orderly without the kind of uh, social chaos and disorder that we've been seeing under the NDP government. You know, I was talking to a, another media person and we were chatting about the platform you unveiled. And uh, he said, he says, I wonder if the NDP is going to look at that plan and go, well, we were going to do a lot of that too. Like, do you think that's going to be some of the, the feedback? Because it is a, it's a comprehensive plan. It's expensive, but it's a yes. comprehensive plan. It is. And I should uh, say that to your viewers and listeners that it, it is expensive and that we calculated, you know, uh, and we tried to be very thorough about this, that it would be about $1.5 billion over three years. That would be both capital and, and, and some of the additional operating costs. But I do want your viewers to know this. There will be significant savings that will be harvested that nobody even thinks about in government today. I can tell you that you think about all the times that these uh, overdose, uh, indiv these individuals struggling with substance abuse, when they overdose, here comes the ambulance again, multiple, sometimes dozens of times a day, uh, you know, down into the, you know, certain areas of, of our different communities to pick up these individuals, take them to the hospital, they get treated in an emergency, then they're released back into the community, they're overdosing again, back to they go, then they're in the streets, and sometimes, especially if they're in the midst of psychosis coupled with crystal meth or fentanyl or what have you, they 
become very unpredictable. Now they're being arrested. Now they're being charged with criminal offenses. Then they're into the justice system. Uh, now you've got policing costs. You've got judicial system costs. You've got ambulance costs. You've got healthcare costs. A lot of that cost can be avoided, and we will harvest enormous savings that I, I would argue. Not to mention just the fact that we'll have safer streets, cleaner streets, and just, you know, more of sense that we're looking after the most vulnerable in society instead of leaving them to their own devices. So um, would the NDP take this platform ideas and, and go with it? I hope they do. And if they do, I'll applaud them. But I here my, here's my concern. I think they are so rigidly going down this road of decriminalizing hard drugs, providing publicly supplied addictive drugs to people, um, that they are just wedded to this plan that they've been, uh, you know, unveiling over six years that has resulted in higher overdose deaths each and every year, the highest we've ever seen in the history of this province. Um, and I just, unfortunately, I have no confidence that they're going to do the right thing and say, no, that approach is failing. We have to go in a totally different direction. If they do, I'll applaud them. I'm not holding my breath. Well, 1.5 would buy them a museum, though. Well, this is the point. You know, it's not just the, the museum they wanted to spend one and a half billion dollars on, which makes absolutely no sense. But it's the hospital in Cowichan that they're building that originally was supposed to be 600 million, that because of their community, so-called community benefit agreements, which I call community ripoff agreements, that says only people that agree to join the 19 designated NDP favored unions are allowed to bid on this project. What that does is reduce the pool of potential bidders, drives up the cost of these projects. That, that $600 million project is now at $1.4 billion and counting. And every single community ripoff agreement that they've brought in, in, into place is the same thing, behind schedule, over budget. And those dollars could have gone towards exactly what I've been calling for, which is a much more thoughtful and compassionate approach to dealing with mental health and addiction challenges. It, it seems like that's going to be the hot point for the next election, when, whenever that election is. It, it's going to be that homelessness, the opioid uh, epidemic. It's going to be those are the those are the touch points, along with inflation, inflationary pressures. But is is that what you're sensing? Is that that is the the core belief? Is of most people in British Columbia are thinking, we need a plan for this, and this is the only way we're going to vote for that for that party is is if they actually have a fundamental plan. Is that kind of what you're sensing? Well, yeah, I, I feel very, very strongly about that. Not just on this issue, but I I think it's that whole you know there's just such a huge chasm between what they promise and the, and the announcements they make and the outcomes we actually get. And uh, mental health and addictions is just, you know, a, a glaring example of a total public policy uh, failure. And, and I would argue that went through multiple governments because it was actually back in the social credit government days that they made the decision to close down Riverview and Essendale and Tronkeel up in Kamloops. And, and that continued all the way through 10 years of NDP government. It continued through our government while I was there and, and right up to this current government. But as I said at my press conference, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing and just acknowledge that like we've just totally screwed up on this issue of, of dealing with society's most vulnerable. And, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that everyone just gets involuntarily taken off the streets and put into facilities. But my God, there are folks that genuinely need that kind of help and care. And as some of the top psychiatrists in our province keep reminding me, they say, Kevin, you know, with many of these folks do very, very well, but they need time. Like you can't, 
You can't just do it in six months and nine months for some of these folks. They may need up to two years. Some, frankly, small percentage may need a lifetime of care because the, the brain damage that has happened, it's called acquired brain injury as a result of repeated and repeated overdose, et cetera, I mean, they just, they'll never be able to fully function, uh, you know, in society and make decisions in their own best interest. But we still owe them, uh, you know, the dignity of, of being properly looked after. And then we still need to make sure that we ensure that there's not a new generation of kids that are coming uh, into the drug scene. Um, I would argue, potentially, even if the government doesn't mean it, but, but you know, I, when you when they use terms like decriminalization of drugs, when they talk about safe supply and harm reduction, I mean, we have to be very, very careful with it. This language can be very confusing for young kids that are being tempted into a drug lifestyle. Uh, that's why I don't like that, those terms. You know, publicly supplied addictive drugs are just what they are. They're addictive drugs being supplied by the government. And, you know, our focus should not be on just providing publicly supplied addictive drugs. That may be a small component of the spectrum of services, but the primary overwhelming goal of government ought to be helping folks get off of their addiction into treatment and recovery. And some can do it. And we have to celebrate those successes. I met many of the women that have been, you know, uh, suffered unbelievable lived experiences on the streets and tent cities, et cetera, that have, that have recovered and have got their kids back and their lives back and their families back and they're back working and they're contributing members of society. And they're so thankful about the policy that we announced because it, it is a ringing endorsement of the fact that there can be success here. We can do better. Better is possible. That's why I called our policy. Better is possible. We cannot give up on that. Better is possible is, is a theme I want to carry off on. The healthcare system. I mean, you talked about it off the top, about uh, wait times, uh, getting GPs for families, that kind of thing. At some point, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I, I'm blessed with hope. I really am. But at some point, is it, is it too broken? Um, because it seems like it needs a massive revamp. There's a lot of, of different uh, irons in the fire, so to speak. Uh, there's unions, of course. There's, there's a lot of different loud voices in that space. Mm -hmm. Thoughts going forward for you to take that office if you're able to take that office, what would some of the things that you would implement to try and create shorter wait times so people actually have access to healthcare? Yeah, what a great question. I think this is the actually one of the main reasons I came back to doing what I'm doing because, you know, believe me when I tell you, I didn't need this job. I didn't need to come back and do this. The reason I'm doing this is actually for my kids' generation. It's, it's for you know, all the kids and grandkids of, of British Columbians out there that are going to be coming forward into a healthcare system that is actually on the verge of collapse. It is literally collapsing on its own inefficiency. And what I'm going to be saying to the public is, listen, if you want more of the same, vote, continue voting NDP, because I guarantee that's exactly what you'll get. David Eby, as the new incoming premier of the NDP, signaled that very clearly by reappointing Adrian Dix, who's been the architect of healthcare for the last six years of this NDP government and has overseen the worst outcomes. And, and it's not it's not me saying that, by the way. This is like independent groups and reports that come out that show that BC is the worst in the country in virtually every measurement. So if you want more of that, definitely keep voting NDP because you will definitely get it. But don't vote for Kevin Falcon if you don't want to see somebody that is going to bring innovation 
and is going to be unafraid to challenge the status quo in our system because all I care about is the individual. I want to make sure that the individual that needs that health care, needs that knee surgery or hip procedure or whatever the case may be, gets that care when they need it. And, and you know, with not is just going to sit there making excuses and adding even more vice presidents earning up to $400,000 a year in our system. We've got 64 vice presidents under this NDP government in our health sector earning up to $400,000 a year on average right across the system. Some much higher, some lower, but, you know, on average. Like, this is outrageous. And and I, I always say, you know, if, if with 64 people, if we were getting like amazing outcomes, maybe you could argue, well, you know, yeah, but we are getting pretty good outcomes. So maybe those 64 are doing their job, but we're not, we're getting terrible outcomes. And, you know, in spite of the fact that they keep throwing more money into the system, they've increased the, the bureaucracy in, in the healthcare system unbelievably since they've come into power and we get worsening results. So yeah, a total shift in direction is needed, Rick. And I can tell you, you know, this, latest announcement from the federal government will do very little mm-hmm. to, to actually improve things. And just because a 2% increase in our current budget uh, is going to make no difference, uh, frankly, in, in the healthcare system. It's how we're spending the dollars that we have in the system now that is the problem. So I see the signs hire back our heroes. Obviously, you know what that that deals with. Is that something that you would immediately address? Is yes, of course back? I would. Can you imagine that we've got a situation right now? I've been calling for this since June of last year. We've got highly skilled nurses and doctors in some cases that are are sidelined because this government has some kind of bizarre ideological fixation of continuing to punish them. Because for whatever reason, some very sound that they've determined that they weren't going to, you know, get vaccinated back in the day. But, you know, they've all probably had COVID by now and we're well past, uh, you know, that situation. And still this NDP government says we're not going to let them come back into the healthcare system at a time when we're struggling uh, in a system that is just desperately needing their expertise and their help. And, you know, as uh, Dr. Kevin McLeod said today, I, I on Twitter, you know, he's a highly regarded doctor. A lot of the media follow him because he's so sensible. He said at some point, it just it just becomes politics and it undermines confidence in the healthcare system when you have a government behaving the way this government is doing under Adrian Dix and, and uh, David Eby. You know, for God's sakes, we need these folks back in the system. What are we doing? So I again call for them. Let our healthcare workers back into the system to provide the services British Columbians desperately need and stop punishing them uh, for no reason whatsoever when everywhere else in the country is allowing uh, those workers to be back in the system except here in British Columbia under the NDP where they continue to attack healthcare workers that are trying to get back into the system. And my worry is the people that are currently holding down these shifts are getting burdened with uh, extra duties, extra shift work because they are short. And, and that's the problem is the people that are there, they're getting pushed out of the system because they're just like, enough's enough. We cannot continue this load. That's exactly right. And here's the irony, Rick. And boy, if this is not ironic, I don't know what is. The NDP, because of these shortfalls, are having to turn to the private sector to bail us out of the situation we're in today. That's why the rate of contract nurses which are private sector nurses that the government's paying up to three times more than what a nurse would cost us in our system today to come in and cover off shifts 
that are being uh, vacated by, uh, you know, by the shortage of nurses we have in the system. It's the same government that is using the dreaded private sector to deliver the surgical procedures they need because the government can't get it done in the public system right now. And they've had to turn to these, uh, these private clinics to provide the surgeries uh, that they so desperately need. I mean, this is the, the irony of it all. I've said, like, why do we continue to penalize these health workers? I, as I said back in June, you can go look at my statement. For God's sakes, you know, have them wear the PP, you know, the personal protection equipment if they're so concerned about what, whatever the concerns that they have, even though everyone else in the country has allowed those workers to come back and, and provide important services. Uh, but for God's sakes, get them back to work. And this government just won't. And I think it, it's politics at the expense of the public interest. You and I could spend some time uh, just talking about healthcare, but I want to switch uh, over to, I had a friend on uh, the podcast. He's a, a fire mitigation specialist, uh, suppression. And he, he was very critical of the current government about how they deal with proactive fire mitigation. And he was talking about how, you know, fundamentally we have a resource, uh, we can harvest uh, the trees, we can we can make sure it's done in a diligent manner so it actually provides safety. Like there's a lot of pros to doing it this way. He says, for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be an appetite with the current NDP government to, to deal with it in this way. They prefer to spend a lot of money on emergency response. He was just trying to figure out, you know, what what perhaps your government would look like as far as that suppression fire mitigation would look like. The whole emergency management program has to be completely um, redone. I, I can tell you, I, I hear nothing but complaints about how poorly uh, this uh, NDP government has managed uh, all of these crises. And, and the worst is they're not listening to folks in communities and in the private sector that have repeatedly said, we're here to help. We've got all the equipment sitting idle while you're sitting around, um, you know, shutting down firefighting, you know, as if they're unionized hours. Okay, time to call it quits, folks. Let's all go home now. It's gotten dark outside. Well, you know, there's something called night vision goggles. Uh, there's lots of, there's helicopter firms, I've pointed this out publicly before, that, that have the capability to fly at night. This is not revolutionary. We argued with the government, for God's sakes, why would you just stop fighting fires at nighttime when that's actually the time when the temperature cools and they could still be doing some great work there and helping suppress some of these fires that are, are at risk of spinning out of control and taking out communities, et cetera. So there's just like, there, there was private sector businesses sitting on the sidelines saying, we've got equipment that can be put to work right now that could help government deal with this. Their, their phones aren't ringing. It's just silence. Um, and, you know, I've heard this so many times now, it's just so clear to me that uh, we just need some leadership, frankly, in almost everything happening in government. I, 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 I do sometimes get discouraged because I wish I could point to something that they're doing well. I'd like to actually say, you know, in this area, at least they're doing well. And I, I struggle to find anywhere where I've heard from British Columbians that things are going well. I'll give you an ex another example. You know, the civil service has grown by 30% under this NDP government and in six years of NDP government. And what I always say to people, has anybody anywhere noticed a 30% improvement in any service the government's providing? And I've yet to hear a person raise their hand and say, yes, here's an area we've noticed a really dramatic improvement. And that ought to terrify people because it's not just 
the $12 billion a year in additional cost that a 30% improvement or, or increase in, in civil service does. It's like we're getting worse outcomes. That's not good. That tells me that we've got a government that doesn't know how to execute and get things done. And I would argue that it's because most of them have not spent time in the private sector and don't know what it is to be held accountable for results and don't know how to roll up your sleeves and say, okay, we need to have some accountability measurements put in place here to make sure that we're actually advancing towards the objective that we want to get. And if we're not hitting that objective, then people are going to be held accountable for those lack of results. There's none of that in this government. It is interesting from the standpoint of a lot of their policies, and I have to uh, commend you because in, in many of the interviews I've seen with you, you talk about the fact that, you know, they're fundamentally good people. They, they believe they're doing the right thing. Um, some of their policies, though, when you actually drill down on them, when it comes to minimum wage, when it comes to low-income housing, a lot of their policies, or, or I guess some of these press releases talk about, the fundamental goal of what they're shooting for actually gets missed by the policy decision of, you know, higher DCCs and, and, and a host of other taxes, which actually creates a higher percentage for building that home. And, and I, I often wonder if, if somebody doesn't stop and say, wait a second, are we fundamentally hurting or, or are those goals objectives that they're shooting for not realistic. I, I, I don't know if, if there's a question in there or more just a statement of sometimes their policies don't match what their goals are. It's well, I, I would say it this way, Rick, um, that I, I do believe they're, the NDP are well-intentioned. I, I really do. I don't think any of them went into government to say, let's go and get you know just some of the worst results in the country. I think it's just that their, their skill set is not, is not the kind of skill set you need when you're asking people to run a $72 billion a year economy uh, or budget. Um, you know, that, that I think is the fundamental problem. Like for example, when I read their Pathway to Hope, which was their very thick document on mental health and addictions, what became really clear to me is that this was a document that is full of platitudes and it's got everything but any kind of targets or measurable outcomes or, you know, anything that, you know, anyone in the private sector that's been there for any you know, minimum number of years would know that if you're going to proceed with something, you want to make sure you've got some measurables to find out whether you're actually getting the results you need. So we've got the situation where the um, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions can't even tell you how many beds are out there, how many are unfunded, um, and, you know, how many people are, they, they don't even measure the results of the programs they're currently funding for treatment to see if anyone's actually getting better. Uh, that's remarkable. So the, the dollars are just going in, but nobody's actually checking to see whether we're getting any return on that investment. And so I think fundamentally that the, the problem for this government is that, you know, most of them have, have very little meager, if none, experience in the private sector. Some have never spent any time in the private sector. And then they come, they're put in charge of a big ministry with massive budgets, and with the best of intentions, they want to try and get good results. They haven't got a clue what they're doing. Housing is a great example. David Eby was the minister responsible for housing for years. Um, yet David Eby is, has absolutely no background whatsoever in the private sector. You know, prior to becoming a, an MLA, he worked for Pivot Legal Society, where he was noteworthy for writing the manual, How to Sue the Police. Then he went over to the BC Civil Liberties Association, radicalized that organization to the point where during the 2010 Winter Olympics, uh, they felt their primary objective was to 
you know, walk around following the police with cameras, uh, trying to harass them when they're trying to arrest anarchists that were smashing windows in downtown Vancouver, trying to disrupt uh, the Olympics, you know? So that's not the kind of private sector background you need for someone to now say, let's fix housing. And that's probably why it took him two terms before he finally woke up and realized, gee, maybe the lack of supply might have something to do with the challenges we're facing. And, you know, those of us that are in the private, we're in the private sector, we're like, well, no kidding, you know? Um, of course, that's going to be a big piece uh, of the puzzle. Supply and demand is a fundamental economic precept. And yet he spent all his time in the first term trying to say it was all because of Chinese foreign buyers. Then he tried to say it was because of Chinese money laundering. Uh, then he said it was corrupt of BC liberals. And of course, Judge Collin came out and threw all that aside and said, well, none of that's true at all. And now he's apparently discovered REITs. Now he's saying, well, the real issue is big corporations and real estate investment trusts. That's the problem with our, you know, why rents are so high in BC. He hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. Real estate investment trusts, I can tell you, a lot of his unions that support him invest in real estate investment trusts. So do a lot of his members and, and supporters of the NDP. Why? Because they're making an investment in, in the real estate market. And that's one avenue that allows the little person uh, to be able to have some ability to invest. He's now trying to turn that into the latest bogeyman. But it's not about bogeyman. It's about fundamentals. And he fundamentally doesn't understand supply and demand. He does not understand what it takes to build housing in this province. He doesn't, only recently has he begun to figure out, gee, if it takes six years to get a permit to build one single residential tower in the city of Vancouver, maybe that's part of the problem. Well, no kidding. In fact, I'll say one more thing about this since you got me going. Um, the NDP have acknowledged which is a good thing, that their permitting processes are part of the problem too. And that's for sure the case, whether it's Ministry of Environment, whether it's the, the geological branch here or the, the historical branch or whatever they call it, uh, the, the um, you know, Ministry of Transportation. But here's the problem. Uh, when faced with the acknowledgement that you know, permitting from the province is part of their problem, what's David's EV solution? And this is unbelievable, but they're going to hire up to 200 more bureaucrats to tell the existing bureaucrats how they have to do a faster job of approving the permits. I mean, this is you, this stuff writes itself. I mean, I can't even believe this. Instead of saying, maybe we should look at our own processes in government and improve them like we did when I was in government, we reduced unnecessary red tape by 42% and made sure that we had outcome-based regulations so that we focus on the outcome we want, not on the process. Um, you know, instead of doing that, he's gonna add more bureaucrats to the bureaucracy to try and speed up the existing bureaucracy to approve permits. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, it, it is, it, it does write itself. Um, <laughs> there's a question, there's a word in politics that um, I believe in personally because I run my own business. I'm an independent business owner and I have to pay attention to expenses, revenues, that kind of thing. And when, when I hear the word austerity, and when it comes to government, a lot of people, you know, it's it's a volatile word. And a lot of people listening to this are going, oh, oh if we if we invite in the United Party, we're going to face some austerity measures and, and, and things. And again, I'm not saying I, I guess there's a balance there, of course. But is that a word? Because people are listening to this going, well, are they going to chop, chop, chop? Like what's going to happen? Sure. So first of all, look, I, I think it's really important to understand. And I, you know, I used to have a sign in my office when I was finance minister and it said, think like a taxpayer. 
because all of the dollars that come to government are not, it's not government money. It's money that, you know, small entrepreneurs like yourself or individuals that are out there working hard, working their shift as a taxi driver or a nurse or, you know, a small business person, whatever the case may be, they send their money to Victoria. And we have an obligation to be responsible in how it's spent. You know, it is not responsible when we have, you know, the, the CEO that they hired at Provincial Health Services Authority that, you know, had a, you know, expensive audit being paid for by taxpayers that spent millions of dollars on, you know, fixing up their offices during COVID on unnecessary expenditures. That uh, and then when they go to spend seven million dollars to you know to, to buy PPE equipment, it turns out to be substandard and unusable, and they have to throw it all away. I mean that you know that is so disrespectful to taxpayers that I am really concerned that there's just a culture of waste right across this government. And again, because it's people with good intentions that don't know how to make sure that we're being respectful and responsible with taxpayer money. Um, you know, when the, the budget, uh, the last budget of the BC Liberals was just over $50 billion. Um, the NDP came into power, you know, partnering with the Greens there for the first few years. They've now been there six years. And now we've got an annual budget of $72 billion. That is a massive increase in spending. And yet, as I said earlier, we're getting some of the worst outcomes and results we've ever seen. And so it's not about austerity or being parsimonious or anything. It's just about being respectful of the fact that the people that earn that money work hard. And 44% of families in British Columbia today are $200 a month or less away from being able to meet their own family budget. And this at the same time that we've got a government that is trying to blow $5 billion plus by March 31st, just trying to throw it all out the door to get rid of it and spend it. Why? Because they don't want to have to pay down debt for the next generation. And I, I've said publicly that if they're so intent on just spending that money quickly, then for God's sakes, give it back to that 44% of British Columbians that are $200 a month away from being able to meet their family budget and at least let them make a decision on how that those dollars should be best spent in their own interest. But to just, you know, spray it like a fire hose in every direction without any proper timelines or, uh, you know, homework being done or any proper accountabilities and stuff, that ought to concern British Columbians a lot. Oh, oh there's concern. Uh, last question on the resource sector, uh, the mining sector specifically, BC's blessed with lots of resources. It seems like there's been a, an indifference, one could say, towards mining resource. Where do you stand on, on that sector? Oh, it's not just an indifference. I really believe, first of all, this, you know, this is not like the NDP of old. The NDP of old actually used to have some pretty good rural MLAs that, you know, they used to think about the province as a whole. Um, this is not that government at all. It's an urban government that cares about the lower mainland and Vancouver Island. That's it. Um, you know, we had the premier of the province, David Eby, go up to the Northern Resource Forum in Prince George. I was there. And he gets up in front of the crowd and absolutely just completely misreads the room, you know, and doesn't even mention the initials LNG, which I want to remind your viewers, the largest private sector investment in Canada is taking place in British Columbia right now, over $42 billion in liquefied natural gas, which, by the way, 
is so critical, especially with what's going on in Europe, where the Europeans have woken up and realized, my God, we can't trust corrupt dictatorships like Russia or Saudi Arabia to, to you know, uh, provide us with, with the natural gas that, that we need or the oil that we need. And people are now looking rightly, appropriately, to where, you know, jurisdictions like Canada, where it's ethically produced at the highest, you know, environmental standards in the world um, to, to get their supply. So here's how I look at it. I, first of all, want you to know, I care a lot about the climate. And I can tell you that if we, through LNG, can get countries like Japan and India and China to move off of their coal-fired power into LNG, that alone result in up to 50% reduction in global emissions, like a massive reduction. That is helping move us in the right direction as we transition to a green future. And mining, I can tell you, all the electric cars that people love, all the windmills that people love and the turbines and all those kind of things cannot happen without the minerals needed for them and the cell phones that people use every day. And guess what? BC is blessed that we've got those minerals, most of them in abundance. But that means we have to get mining and we've got to ensure that we get that, those minerals out of the ground so that we help the world transition to that greener future. I think that mining, technology and, and smart people that we have, lots of them in British Columbia, are actually how we're going to solve the climate crisis. And, you know, but we can't be ashamed of our natural resource sector. My God, forestry is a renewable resource. It's part of the solution to climate problems. And we've got to be We've got to champion our natural resource sector as part of that solution. And I certainly will do so. And I'm not going to be like this NDP government, which is ashamed of our natural resource sector. And the literally um, the millions of people that are directly or indirectly employed by the natural resource sector and the billions of dollars that provides to allow us to fund our healthcare system and our justice system and you know all the other things, our education system that we value. We cannot lose sight of that, and I certainly won't if I become the premier of this province. I got to say, uh, Mr. Falcon, it's been an absolute pleasure because uh, I'm, I'm so glad you put your hat back in the ring because I know you didn't have to, and I'm glad uh, maybe it was the kids that got you to do that. But I appreciate the fact that they did. Well, thank you, and I and I appreciate it too. And look, I you know at the end of the day, I just want to make sure that we put forward. Um, a, a clear set of policies that really show British Columbians we're going to go in a very different direction than this current crop of uh, NDP government. And, you know, frankly, I want to be held accountable for the results we get or do not get. Uh, just as I'm holding this government to account, and that's our job as official opposition, holding them to account for their disastrous results, quite frankly, in everything uh, that's taking place in government right now. And I think I, I'm optimistic because I believe at the end of the day, results matter and the public knows that. And it's time we get a government that focuses on results and outcomes and delivers the kind of change in policy that'll get us better outcomes so that our kids and our grandkids can grow up feeling that same sense of optimism and hope for the future that we enjoyed uh, growing up in British Columbia under great leaders like W.A.C. Bennett, and Bill Bennett, and Gordon Campbell, and I would argue even Dave Barrett and some of these other, you know, NDP leaders. John Horgan, you know, John Horgan was a, I like John, at least he sort of had an optimistic view of, of the world. He got lucky because he had two years of COVID during a time when there was effectively no one opposing him because the opposition party said, let's not oppose him. But, you know, at the end of the day, I like the fact that at least he had a sort of a sunny positive uh, sense of the future, not the sort of brooding, uh, you know, uh, kind of 
leadership that we're seeing right now that talks about, you know, the answer to everything is just to hire more people into the premier's office and uh, uh, as if that's going to somehow, you know, get us better outcomes. So, well, I, I would say that there's uh, going to be plenty of work if, uh, if you get into that office, that's for sure. Let's just, let's no just say that. Uh, Mr. Malkin, again, a, a great pleasure, and uh, we'll get you back on the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it, Rick.